we'd like to take a moment to tell you about our other podcast, Everyday Saints. Everyday Saints is about the topics we all want to hear, and maybe some you don't even know are a thing. Hosted by me, Valerie Loveless, we delve into the things Everyday Saints want to know more about. Little-known temple facts, challenges from the prophet, how to live your best life in the spirit of the gospel, and more. Look for the Captain Moroni in your podcasting app. Brought to you by Cedarfort Publishing and Media. Hi, and welcome to this podcast for section 71 through section 75 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I am David J. Bridges, the author of your study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier study guide series. As we begin today's session, it would probably be quite helpful for you to have your scriptures handy. We will be spending a lot of time in them, and you may want to provide some notations or markings in your hard copies or your electronic device scriptures. The background of section 71 is that this revelation was given to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon on December 1st, 1831 while they were working on the translation of the Bible. That's the Joe Smith translation of the Bible. They were working at the John Johnson home in Hiram, Ohio. In the background to section 64 in the study guides that I wrote, I mentioned that a member of the church by the name of Ezra Booth had apostatized from the church and had written nine bitter and inflammatory anti-Mormon articles that had caused a lot of sentiment against against the church in the Kirtland, Ohio area. At the time of this revelation, section 71, an apostate and former member of the church named Ezra Booth had joined in publicly attacking the church. As you know, we're generally counseled to ignore the efforts and writings of such people. Missionaries especially are so instructed. If we were to take our time and energy to rebut such attacks, and there are so many such attacks constantly all around us, It would take away from the time and energy we spend in serving others and filling our responsibilities with our families, with the church, with our employment, with missionary work, and so forth. If we debated with every individual who desires to debate and confront us about the church, there would be much more tension and animosity, and few would be able to hear the peaceful call of the church to follow Christ. You see this with our uh, prophet today and the general authorities. Uh, They do not take a lot of time uh, to rebut attacks against the church and its doctrines. Therefore, the instruction of the Lord to Joseph Smith and Sidney in this revelation, section 71, is somewhat unusual. I had a friend who was serving as a mission president at the time who told me that a set of elders one day excitedly called him at his office and told them that they had just found a scripture that would allow them to 
to debate the local minister in public. The minister had been causing a lot of trouble for them as they attempted to do their missionary work in his area. Curious and, of course, concerned, the president asked them to tell him what verse they were using. They pointed him to section 71, verse 7. Let's read that. Section 71, verse 7. Quote, Wherefore, confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. And inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Also, let's use verse 8. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Well, the elders were excited that they had found permission in the Doctrine and Covenants itself to go ahead and debate this minister in public. Well, uh, the... My friend knew the background to this verse and counseled the elders that this was a special context-sensitive case in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it did not constitute a general license for all missionaries to debate in public. They were, of course, somewhat disappointed, but they understood, and so they settled back and continued to follow the counsel of the Lord in section 19 verse 30 which says quote reviling not against revilers that's generally the counsel for all of us now going back to the background and setting for this section section 71 because of the damage being done to the church and individual members in Ohio, the Lord instructs Joseph and Sidney to go ahead and engage in public as well as private, debating with these enemies of the gospel. By the way, they did with much success. And in section 73, verse 3, we'll be there in a few minutes, they will be told to go back to the work of translating the Bible, in other words, working on the Joseph translation of the Bible, which is invaluable to us. Well, let's look at a few of the verses here in section 71. In verse 1, the Lord says, Thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, that the Time has verily come that it is necessary and expedient in me that you should open your mouths in proclaiming my gospel, the things of the kingdom, expounding, in other words, explaining the mysteries thereof out of the scriptures, according to that portion of the spirit and power which shall be given unto you, even as I will. And then in verse 3, just the first line and part of the second, where they are told that this is just a temporary uh, assignment because they'll need to, of course, as we know, get back to translation of the Bible. So verse 3, verily, this is a mission for a season. Then we'll skip to verse 7. Wherefore, confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private, and inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Verse 8, Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. And then a very encouraging 
verse, verse 9, to Joseph and Sidney and all of us. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, there is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a president of the church some years ago, tells us what happened as Joseph and Sidney carried out the Lord's instructions at this time. He said, Quite generally, the Lord counsels his servants not to engage in debates and arguments, but to preach in power the fundamental principles of the gospel. This was a condition that required some action of this kind, and the Spirit of the Lord directed these brethren to go forth and confound their enemies, which they proceeded immediately to do, as their enemies were unable to substantiate their falsehoods and were surprised by this sudden challenge so boldly given. Much of the prejudice was allayed and some friends made through this action. So, Joseph and Sidney were very successful and did a lot of good as they uh, followed the instructions here. Next, in verse 10 of section 71, we see that anyone who fights against the Lord's work will eventually be stopped. But pay attention to this. It will happen according to the wisdom and timing of the Lord. Verse 10, the last few words emphasize that. He shall be confounded in mine own due time. So. If we are in a situation where somebody's bad-mouthing the church and uh, we just need to be patient uh, and not revile against revilers, we can answer questions with a civil attitude and give a few hints, but we would not want to go into full public debate uh, between us and them regarding their statements that are not favorable to the gospel or even God. Now let's go to section 72. This is where the uh, Joseph Smith papers work. It will really be helpful to us. The heading to section 72 in the 2013 printing of the Doctrine and Covenants. By the way, that's the most recent uh, printing of the Doctrine and Covenants. 2013. You might even want to look at your own scriptures and see when they were printed. At any rate, the heading to section 2 in the 2013 printing um, states that this section is a compilation of three revelations received on the same day. They were given through the Prophet Joseph Smith in Kirtland, Ohio on December 4th, 1831. Verses 1 through 8 are the first revelation, and immediately after they were received, Newell K. Whitney was ordained a bishop. Edward Partridge had already been ordained the first bishop of the church, now Newell K. Whitney. Then verses 9 through 23 were received again on that same day, outlining the duties of a bishop. And then verses 24 to 26 were provided, given, providing instructions for the gathering down to Zion in Missouri. 
By the way, you'll see that several practices of the church today have their precedence in this section, such as requiring that a priesthood holder have a temple recommend or have a written recommendation from his bishop in order to perform an ordinance outside his own ward. I had this experience just a few months ago. One of our grandsons, in fact, our oldest grandson, uh, was preparing to serve a mission. And so I, he invited me as his grandpa, since he was in Provo and his parents were back in Michigan. He invited Grandpa Ridges here to ordain him, confer upon him the Melchizedek priesthood, and to ordain him to the office of an elder. And then when he invited me to do it, he mentioned that he had talked to his bishop, and his bishop requested that I bring a letter from my bishop to uh, authorize me to perform this ordinance. So I went to my bishop. He said, yes, I'm familiar with that need. And he gave me a very brief statement that I could do this. And I took it and I ordained him an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood. It was a special day, of course, for us. Well, uh, Let's move ahead to the first revelation, the first of three given on this same day in section 72. Uh, we'll just move right to verse 2, section 72, where the Lord says, It is expedient in me. In other words, it has become necessary for a bishop to be appointed unto you. And then we'll skip right to verse 8, where it tells us who the bishop is to be. Verse 8, And now, verily I say unto you, my servant Newell K. Whitney is the man who shall be appointed and ordained under this power. In other words, to be the bishop in Kirtland. As mentioned previously in the background material for this section, verses 9 through 23 were given after Newell K. Whitney was ordained a bishop. Verses 9 through 23 were given after Newell K. Whitney was ordained a bishop. They give additional details about the duties of a bishop as well as more about the law of consecration, the need for certificates or what we would call recommends to be carried by priesthood holders in order to function in their priesthood. Can you see the great value of having it tightly controlled like this, to have a certificate from your own bishop before you can perform priesthood functions in an area outside your ward or branch? So, verses 9 through 23, we'll just touch on a few of the things that are due. The bishop's duties here. Verse 9, the word of the Lord, line 1, and then skipped about the middle of the verse, making known the duty of the bishop who has been ordained unto the church in this part of the vineyard, in other words, in Kirtland, which is barely this. Verse 10, to keep the Lord's storehouse. In other words, today the equivalent of that is the bishop's storehouse. That's one of the bishop's responsibilities. And he works very closely with the Relief Society president in um, 
controlling the uses of the bishop's storehouse and making sure that people's needs are taken care of. Another one of the bishop's duties, verse 10, is to receive the funds of the church, such as tithing, fast offering, humanitarian aid, missionary fund, and so forth today. By the way, uh, today we, at least in this area, are able to go online and contribute these funds. But at tithing settlement time, we are we have an accounting with the bishop where he asks us if we're full-tithe payers and he goes over our contributions. So the bishop still is in charge of these funds, uh, even though we can pay them directly online if we so choose. Also, in verse 11, he is to, in this case with uh, Newell K. Whitney, he is to take an account of the elders uh, and to administer to their wants. In other words, in that time in the church, there were a lot of elders being sent out on missions to preach the gospel, and they had needs. And uh, the bishop is to make sure they have enough money taken from welfare funds to succeed on their missions and where necessary to make sure their families are well are taken care of adequately. Now, one of the things we see in action next in verse 13, which is likewise done in the church today, is this. When a local ward or branch does not have sufficient fast offering funds to meet the needs of the poor and the needy among them, funds can be given from the general church funds to that ward or branch to assist the local bishop in meeting their needs. We also, when I was serving as state president, um, some of our fast offering funds that were over and above what we needed were uh, in one ward were transferred to help another ward in our state. So the basic uh, needs of the welfare system are carefully controlled and made available where they are needed. Let's go ahead and move clear over to uh, verses 17 and 18 once again where the recommend the equivalent of a recommend is being set up as a standard for performing ordinances outside of your own ward or branch in verse 17 it says a certificate in other words the equivalent of a recommend from the judge or bishop there's an interesting phrase a certificate from the judge or bishop. There, the bishop is called a judge, and our bishops are set apart. When they are ordained a bishop, they are also ordained and set apart to be a judge in Israel. And bishops judge us for worthiness. We get our temple recommends from them. If we've slipped up and have church privileges taken away from us for a while, and then we work things out and repent and get things straightened out with the bishop. Then he once again is our judge and gives us a recommend to go to the temple and so forth. Well, let's move along a bit. Uh, time is moving pretty fast here. Uh, let's uh, 
jump ahead past verse 18, where the Lord, uh, starting with verse 19, where the Lord instructs that every elder in the Ohio area who desires a recommend from Bishop Newell K. Whitney and who doesn't live under his immediate supervision should bring a recommend from his branch president and then Bishop Whitney can give him a recommend to be used uh, down in Missouri where Bishop uh, Partridge is in charge of things there. So verse 19, uh, skipping a bit, line two, let every elder, and then go halfway through the verse, let every elder be recommended by the church or churches, in other words, the branch or branches of the church in which he labors, that he may render himself and his accounts approved in all things. In other words, once again, uh, from your local bishop or branch president, you can get a recommend and then use that with the two bishops wherever, if you're working in their territories. Uh, there's another really interesting thing that takes place here in section 72. Um, that's in verses 20 to 22. They refer specifically to the brethren in Doctrine and Covenants section 70, verses 1 to 3, who had the direct responsibility to see that the Book of Commandments was published. They referred to themselves as the literary firm. Because their responsibilities required their full time, they were to receive assistance from the funds of the church to support themselves and their families. So let's read that in verses 20 to 22. And again, let my servants who are appointed as stewards over the literary concerns, in other words, to they're responsible for the printing of the Book of Commandments, which is the predecessor of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let my servants who are appointed as stewards over the literary concerns of my church have claim for assistance upon the bishop or bishops in all things, verse 21, that the revelations, in other words, the book of commandments, may be published. That'll be taking place down in Missouri, by the way, and go forth unto the ends of the earth. That, then in verse 22, that they also may render themselves approved in all things, in, in other words, in order for them to be able to carry out the responsibilities to get the Book of Commandments printed. In other words, they are to have access and be helped from the welfare funds of the church. This would apply very much, of course, to our full-time general authorities and others who, uh, like mission presidents, when needed, they would be supported out of the general funds of the church. This is all very reasonable and familiar to us, but you can see that what the Lord is doing here is setting up these basic patterns that we now are uh, so familiar with. It's fascinating to watch how he set them up and put them in motion. Well, let's quickly go to section 73. This revelation was given to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in Hiram, Ohio. Uh, in section 71, remember, that's where we start out today. 
Joseph and Sidney had been told to stop working on the translation of the Bible. In other words, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. We shortened that down to JST. To stop working on that for a season in order to deal directly with the wild rumors and falsehoods being circulated in that area as a result of nine anti-Mormon articles published by apostate Ezra Booth in a local newspaper. The articles ran from October to December and had done much damage to the church. The Prophet Joseph Smith uh, wrote of their efforts in confronting the libel and slander of Ezra Booth and the others. He said, quote, from this time until the 8th or 10th of January, 1832, myself and Elder Rigdon continued to preach in Shalersville, Ravenna, and other places, setting forth the truth, vindicating the cause of our Redeemer, showing that the day of vengeance was coming upon this generation like a thief in the night, that prejudice, blindness, and darkness filled the midst of the minds, filled the minds of many and cause them to persecute the true church and reject the true light, by which means we did much towards allaying the excited feelings which were growing out of the scandalous letters then being published in the Ohio Star at Ravenna by the before-mentioned apostate Ezra Booth. On the 10th of January, I received the following revelation, that'll be section 73 that we're in now, making known the will of the Lord concerning the elders of the church until the convening of the next conference. Close quote. Don't you just love how articulate and powerful the prophet Joseph Smith is? So, they successfully had followed the instructions given in 71. They met these uh, uh, apostates in public debate and uh, changed much of the tide of public opinion. So now, going straight to verse 3 of section 73, we see that they are to stop that and get back to the translation of the Bible. Verse 3, Now verily I say unto you, my servants Joseph Smith, Jr., and Sidney Rigdon, saith the Lord, it is expedient, in other words, necessary, it is expedient to translate again. And then in verse 4, he says, Inasmuch as it is practicable to preach in the regions round about until conference, and after that, it is expedient to continue the work of translation. That's the work of the translation of the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation. Continue the work of translation until it is finished. And he did. Now, section 74. This section is yet another example of the great value coming to us from the research for the Joe Smith Papers Project. Editions of the Doctrine and Covenants prior to the 2013 edition give the date of this revelation as January 1832. But research on the Joe Smith Papers um, 
project showed that it was actually sometime in 1830. Now, Section 74 has a very specific purpose. There was uh, a lot of use in Joseph Smith's day of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, as justification for the belief that little children were born unclean or unholy. Let's uh, read verse 1. Uh, which is a quote from the Bible of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 14, as it stands in the King James Bible. Section 74, verse 1. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Let's read it again, and I'm going to do a little explaining as we go. Section 74, verse 1, a quote of 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband, in other words, the non-member husband, is sanctified, in other words, helped towards being cleansed by the wife, who is a faithful member of the church. This would be the New Testament Church of Jesus Christ as restored by the Savior. And the unbelieving wife, or if it's a non-member wife, is sanctified by the husband, if the husband is the faithful member of the church. So you've got a marriage where one of them is a member of the church and the other is not a member. Else, in other words, otherwise, were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Well, beginning with verse 2 next, the Lord explains the background to this verse. The law of circumcision was part of the law of Moses and was still being practiced by the Jews who had rejected Christ. Thus, if a woman joined the church set up by the Savior during his mortal ministry, her non-member husband still wanted their children to be subject to the law of Moses, including the law of circumcision for males. Verse 2 the Lord explains, now in the days of the apostles, the law of circumcision was had among all the Jews who believed not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, section 74, and it came to pass that there arose a great contention among the people, that is the members of the church, concerning the law of circumcision. For the unbelieving husband was desirous that his children should be circumcised and become subject to the law of Moses, which law was fulfilled. In other words, the law of Moses had now been fulfilled by Jesus Christ with his crucifixion and resurrection and the mission that he performed here on earth. And the law of circumcision was no longer in force. Now, verse 4, and it came to pass that the children, being brought up in subjection to the law of Moses, gave heed to the traditions of their fathers, and believed not the gospel of Christ, wherein they became unholy. So we can see from verse 4 that we just read that the problem was that if children were brought up keeping the law of Moses, even though they may have belonged to the true church and attended its meetings, 
they still ended up believing the law of Moses and the false traditions of the Jews. Thus they grew up to become unholy or unworthy of salvation. So next in verse 5, we're told that Paul had given his opinion that a woman or man should not marry outside the church unless they had an agreement that the children who were born to them would not be raised according to the law of Moses. Verse 5 now, wherefore, for this cause the apostle Paul, I put Paul in there, the apostle, wrote unto the church, in other words, wrote to the Corinthian members of the church, giving unto them a commandment, not of the Lord, but of himself, in other words, expressing his own opinion, that a believer should not be united to an unbeliever. In other words, a believer should not marry an unbeliever, and accept the law of Moses should be done away among them. Verse 6, that their children might remain without circumcision, that the tradition and that the tradition might be done away, which saith little that little children are unholy, for it was had among the Jews. Now, in verse seven, we are taught one of the most beautiful of all doctrines regarding little children. Verse seven, but little children are holy, being sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And this is what the scriptures mean. That is most beautiful. All right, let's finish up with section 75. This is another case where there are two revelations given on the same day, similar to well, section 73, where three revelations, separate revelations were given on the same day. By the way, most of the time, when this happened in the early days of the church, they were treated as separate revelations. But then when the Doctrine and Covenants was compiled, Book of Commandments to some extent, then they were added together to form one section. Now in section 75, one of the most significant things, one of the significant things to watch as we study the whole Doctrine and Covenants is the gradual development of the structure of church leadership as we know it today. Rather than organizing it all at once, the Lord did it step by step as the growth and development of the church warranted it. In a way, it was similar to what happens in outlying areas of the church today. First, there may be a few members and then a dependent branch. In fact, my wife and I, when I was out lecturing for Know Your Religions. We spent some time up in the Northwest uh, where I did some lectures and we were hosted by a couple out on Anderson Island uh, and uh, they kind of jokingly called their little tiny branch a twig. So we had the privilege of attending a twig for church services in their own a delightful experience. Well, uh, as the church grows in outlying areas today, uh, first there may be a few members, then a dependent branch with a minimum of leadership, then a branch with a branch president, then with a full branch presidency, and finally a ward.
with the full normal organization of officers and teachers. For example, when the church was organized on April 6, 1830, there were four priesthood offices to which men were ordained, namely deacon, teacher, priest, and elder. Find that in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 38. And Joseph Smith was called a seer and a translator, a prophet, I'm quoting, a prophet and apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 21, verse 1. Continuing to watch the organization of the church develop over time, in 1831, a new office was added, that of bishop. In 1832, at the time of this revelation, in other words, the time of section 75, Joseph Smith was sustained and ordained as the president of the high priesthood of the church. Thus, he is now the president of the church. In early March of 1832, he'll get counselors for the first time. And on March 15, 1832, the Lord announced that the first presidency held, quote, the keys of the kingdom, which belong always to the presidency of the high priesthood. That's section 81, verse 2. In December of 1833, the first patriarch was called. That was Joseph Smith's father, by the way. In 1834, the first stake was organized at Kirtland on February 17th. In 1835, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was organized. All of this serves to remind us that the Lord does things line upon line as he gradually established the organization of the church as we know it today. Now, at the time of this revelation, some elders had approached the prophet concerned that they were having difficulty in getting people to understand the message of the restoration as they preached and taught it. They asked Joseph to ask the Lord for counsel on this matter. As the Savior responds, he first identifies himself to these elders in verse 1. This would be a great thrill. Verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I who speak, even by the voice of my Spirit, even Alpha and Omega, your Lord and your God. Let's pause a moment and talk about Alpha and Omega that you saw there in verse 1. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, A, the A and Z, so to speak, of the Greek alphabet. The symbolism is that all things are encompassed by the Savior. He knows all things and has all power to help us and bring us to exaltation if we are willing. He can help us in everything from A to Z in our lives. Well, let's move quickly to verse 5. The Savior says, If ye are faithful, ye shall be laden with many sheaves. That phrase laden with many sheaves goes back to the early times when they harvested fields with a scythe or a sharp blade of some sort then they bundled the grain with the stalks and the heads of grain into sheaves and then people picked up the sheaves and hauled them or put them on a cart 
and hauled them to the threshing floor, and then they tromped on the, these stalks of grain to get the kernels of grain loose. They threw the everything up in the air when there was a good wind, and the seeds, the grain, fell back to the harvest room floor, and the other stuff called chaff blew away in the wind. At any rate, verse 5, if ye are faithful, ye shall be laden with many sheaves. In other words, you'll have a great harvest of souls. Thinking we, well, let's do this anyway. I'm looking at the time. Of course, uh, let's uh, look at the next few verses. A little bit of background for verses 6 to 12. These verses are directed to William E. McClellan and to Luke Johnson. In section 66, verse 7, which was given about three months prior to this revelation, the Lord had told Elder William E. McClellan to go to the eastern lands, quote-unquote, to preach. He did go to Pennsylvania and preach some, but returned soon because of disobedience and illness. You may wish to read a little more about William E. McClellan background notes in this study guide if you happen to have it for section 66 and 67. So now the Lord revokes the mission to go to the eastern lands and asks him to go south to preach. One of the lessons we can learn from this change in missions for Brother McClellan is that the Lord mercifully keeps trying with us, even when we make mistakes, and even when our attitude is poor. He loves us and gives us every opportunity to succeed. So verse 6, 7, and 8 shows us the wonderful, merciful uh, approach to us on the part of the Savior and, of course, of Heavenly Father. So verse 6, this is what we'll finish up with. Therefore, verily I say unto my servant, he still calls William E. McClellan his servant, even though he's been disobedient. Therefore, verily I say unto my servant, William E. McClellan, I revoked the commission, in other words, the mission call you had, which I gave unto him to go into the eastern countries, that would be the eastern United States, verse 7, and I give unto him a new commission and a new commandment, in the which I, the Lord, chasten him for the murmurings of his heart. Verse 8, and he sinned, nevertheless I forgive him, and say unto him, Go ye into the south countries. In other words, the Savior is giving him another chance to succeed. Well, brothers and sisters, that's all the time we have. I love how merciful the Lord is because it applies directly to me. And I leave my witness of the truths in the Doctrine and Covenants. I love them and they uh, speak to my soul. And I leave this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.